Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before introducing my guest for today's show, I want to share again why I'm offering this podcast and a little bit about Co Enterprises, my company. As many of you know, I am passionate about helping young professionals in our industry, and I have been, in, have been interested in mentoring and coaching for many years. This podcast came about from my experiences with the ULI Mentor Group, Urban Land Institute, the visits with many of the guests on the show, and how they reacted to those visits at the time. I thought that learning from respected leaders is a valuable exercise, and it obviously seems so from the reaction. My company, Co Enterprises, offers several services to young real estate professionals, including one, navigating the real estate capital markets, because I have a 41-year career in raising capital and interfacing with uh, finance. Number two, formulating a strategy for new and growing companies. Currently, I've been advocating for two companies that are growing and formulating. Three, I offer career guidance services for individuals. And so I do that on a one-on-one basis as well. If any of these services interest you, please reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com, and I'd be happy to provide more details and give you an orientation as to what I can do for you. So my guest today on the podcast is Mike Bush. Mike is the founder of Project REAP, R-E-A-P, a minority real estate education nonprofit that he founded back in 1997 when he was the head of real estate for Giant Food, the largest grocer in the Washington region. Mike left Giant in 1997 after a 20-year career there and then devoted his full energy into building Project Reap into now a nine-city platform, which has graduated over 500 students of minorities, many of whom now work at leading real estate organizations around the country. Mike asked me early on in this efforts, but while he was still a giant, to help him in teaching the financial mod- module of his courses to the Project REAP students at the time here in Washington at Howard University. So in the conversation, Mike talks about his origins growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, and being uh, one of the few Jewish guys in his class and in his school, his education at Stanford University, where he went, and then Harvard Law School. And uh, he initially thought he'd be uh, a doctor at Stanford, but then had a couple of experiences he talks about and moved him towards law. And I said, why law? And he said, well, if you're Jewish, 
that's what you're going to do. You're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. At least that was what his parents told him. <laughs> so then he practiced law for 10 years after Harvard Law and aimed into the real estate sector. And then was his wife wanted to move back to the East Coast because he was in Phoenix. And so they ended up in Washington and uh, met through a, a mutual contact, the head of real estate law at Giant Food, who hired him at Giant. And he morphed over from law into running the real estate department at Giant and tell stories about his experiences there. And uh, when Ahold acquired Giant Food, he was, uh, along with other senior management, was let go at the time, at 2000. So then he went full-time into Project Reap, and he talks about that. Mike is, as you'll hear, a very kind and wise man with a deep sensitivity to understanding and justice. And at the time, when he started Project Reap, he asked the question, why not, when advocating for promoting minority engagement in our industry, which was sorely overlooked, apparently, and still somewhat is. So, and I, I believe his, his passion comes across in our discussion. So without further ado, here is Mike Bush. Welcome, Mike, to the podcast. Appreciate you joining me today. Thank you for uh, being able to share your background and uh, what you're up to today. I understand you're teaching at Georgetown University and you're a senior advisor to Project Reap. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, thank you, John. Thanks for inviting me. I want to thank you for being an early instructor with Reap on the financial side, because at that time, and, and people would say even today, the finance, financial side was not my, uh, my interest or my strong point then. So we needed people like you and Brian Barlow to teach those segments. REAP was founded in 1997, and it was a joint venture, informal joint venture of Giant and the American Jewish Committee and the Greater Washington Urban League. And the objective of REAP was pretty straightforward. It was uh, to introduce minority black professional talent to what someone recently called the legacy industry, meaning that you got introduced to the industry because you inherited it from someone in your family, in your friends, or someone, but it was someone who was already in the industry. I got into it because, well, I mean, it came to me very gradually. I, I was a giant for 20 years and we had blacks in leadership positions and store management and district managers, zone managers, and so on. And uh, Steve Neal, who was our SVP of operations and one of my founding board members. But we had 80 landlords at that time, and they had nobody in management positions. And and it came up naturally in conversations. I said, what is your, uh, is your policy on this? And they said, well, we don't have a policy. I said, if we could find a qualified minority, we would, we would hire one. <laughs> I thought that was, a, that was a strange thing to say, knowing that there are obviously a lot of people out there. So I don't, I don't mean to run on here, John, without your getting in here, but I'll continue as long as you want me to. 
Well, I think uh, what I'd like to get to is kind of, you know, a little bit more about your feelings for getting into REAP and why you did it. And then I thought we'd then transition back to your origins and dig a little deeper on kind of the roots of your thought process going back to uh, your, your origins as well. But maybe give me a little bit more about, you know, kind of what drove you there and getting this started. I was raised by uh, parents who had a real interest in the community. This was in Arizona, and uh, there wasn't a lot of civil rights activity in Arizona because there, you know, it wasn't like Washington where it was Chocolate City. But to the extent that they were involved, I think it sort of got to me through osmosis. It struck me as that I should be active in an industry that was so white that it seemed to me that I ought to be doing something to uh, to help change that. So it was a, as I say, a, a joint venture, and we got our start through grants, a grant from the Meyer Foundation, where Dave Rutstein, my colleague, and I'm sure you you uh, are familiar yes. with Dave, mm-hmm. and ICSC, where Gary. Rappaport was then on his way to becoming chairman. This was, he was, I think, head of government relations. It was a very simple idea, but in the beginning, I had no idea it would actually turn into anything. It was just something I was trying out as a, as a weekend project. I had no business plan. If I'd had a business plan, I probably would have not pursued it because I, I would have thought, how can you change an industry? that is as uh, entrenched as ours is. So, Mike, why don't you transition back to your roots? I think that it's, it's a really interesting story that you decided to do this after you know, being in the industry for 20-plus years in retail plus your legal background. But let's, let's go back to your origins. You said you grew up in Arizona? Where did you grow yeah. in Arizona? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Phoenix. Uh-huh. And uh, Phoenix... When I uh, I grew up, it was it was just coming out of the Second World War, and uh, there wasn't an awful lot going on there. It was very quiet. We had a South Side where it was mostly uh, what we called then a Chicano population. There were virtually no no black businesses except for a funeral home, which is frequently the only black business in a, a formal business in, in cities across the country. My folks were very active. They were active in the synagogue and the, and the symphony and Kiwanis, uh, United Way, which wasn't United Way then. What'd your dad do? He had a shoe store that did Buster Brown. Did you ever wear Buster Brown's, sure. John? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when I was a kid. Yeah. Absolutely. So... He actually sold leather shoes, and uh, he would be horrified <laughs> to see what most people wear for, uh, that they call shoes today. His store had a fluoroscope. I don't know if you remember getting on one of those where you, this was something you got on and you could see your foot bones in the x-ray. It was a, it was a foot x-ray machine. It's probably... Huh. And uh, he actually had salespeople that actually sold shoes. I mean, they, you know, they still have this Nordstrom, places like that. But 
it was a real shoe store. It was a family store. We had Buster Browns. We had women's shoes. We had men's shoes. Did you help them sell shoes when you were younger? No, my my role was a moving stock, moving <laughs> the boxes in the back. My brother liked selling shoes. I was not a good salesperson. I learned selling at, at Giant, but back then, my only experience selling was in a department store. Uh, I got a summer job with a family friend mm-hmm. in the boys' department. We had Boy Scout stuff, knives and scarves and so forth. And I lost the job because that was the time when uh, shawl sweaters were uh, in vogue. And this woman came in and said, I'd like a sweater. And I told her what they cost. And she said, wow. And I said, you know what? I said, my mother's friend knits these and you'll get a, you'll get a much better sweater <laughs> if, you, if you knit it yourself. And my the department manager heard that and he said, you know, <laughs> said, I don't think you're cut out for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's ironic because my dad managed department stores. And, ah. uh, so I grew up in retail as well. So it, it, uh, and I actually sold ladies shoes for three summers while I was uh, in high school and college. So I know that shoe store thing. It was an interesting experience. Boy, the psychology of selling shoes was an interesting one, I have to say. <laughs> and the people that sold, the, the salespeople were all very unusual. Yes. Not to put too fine a point on them. They, they weren't like you, John. <laughs> <laughs> we called them shoe dogs. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. It was funny. So you uh, went to high school there also? You grew up all the way to high school in Phoenix? Yeah, yeah, it was a public high school. We had 2,500 kids. And wow, that's again, big. Yeah, it was a big school, and it was all white. I was just talking with some of my high school classmates who actually I knew from second grade on, and uh, they could only remember one guy who wasn't white. And uh, again, because the city was, was sure. very segregated, like, like uh, virtually all all cities all all towns there was a north side and a yep. south side and mm-hmm. uh, we were on the north side interesting you must have done well in school because you ended up going to stanford university so tell me that uh, story a little bit well i was a bookworm i was not a jock because i had a hay fever and i couldn't couldn't do any outside sports and I was discouraged from indoor sports like basketball because I ran into a, a pole one time trying to do a layup and <laughs> lost some, lost some teeth. And <laughs> yeah, right. Ooh. So I went back to the books and a family friend went to Stanford. So that was uh, where uh, I was going. My parents knew them and they said, all right, you're, that's where you're going. And, so that's that's where I went, and I I had lost the hay fever by then, and I I really wanted to uh, to crew, and Stanford had a good crew, and they, it was on the uh, on the bay. So the first my first semester there was just training because it was fall semester, mm-hmm. and our training was to run the stadium stairs to to build up wow. our 
endurance of pain and energy and so forth. As a result of, of that, uh, I, I almost flunked my chemistry course and <laughs> my mother decided that, <laughs> that I was not going to do crew. I was going to spend my time in classes. So mm -hmm. uh, that, that was that. So uh, any other interesting experiences at Stanford? That was back in the time when there were card sections. You went to school in Michigan, didn't you? That's right. That's so right. you remember card sections? Oh, yeah. We, we didn't have that as much as we were. We, had, we used to pass girls up the stands to the top over our heads. That was, that was our thing. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then at that time, people yeah. liked to smoke marijuana during the game. So you could see the, the cloud of smoke above Michigan Stadium every, every Saturday <laughs> during the game. <laughs> well, I, marijuana hadn't really made, it, made its appearance then. It was more alcohol, and mm -hmm. Stanford was a dry campus in theory. Yeah. So guys would use syringes and put, inject grapefruit and oranges oh, with, sure. uh, with uh, gin or vodka and take them to the games. <laughs> yep. There was a rivalry between Stanford and Berkeley, Cal. The, the big game. Right, the big game, and mm -hmm. there was a uh, was always an attempt to do something to embarrass the other school. And <laughs> Cal, Cal had the idea of coming in and putting on the benches where the card section sat. This was very elaborate. They put in sprinkler hoses under the benches, <laughs> and then they and then they dusted the bench, benches Ooh. with gentian violet, which of course is Cal's color, the blue and gold or violet and gold. Mm -hmm. And uh, our uniforms were white slacks. So fortunately, just before the, uh, the game or early that morning, one of the uh, stadium workers found this and disconnected the hoses and cleaned off the benches and so on. But it was a great stunt had it worked. I don't think we came up with anything nearly as, uh, <laughs> as, as uh, smart as that. We had uh, the initiation into the card section because it was a, a dry school. We had to go into the hills to one of the bars up there and then to get initiated. You had to hold a small megaphone in your hand upside down, put your hand on the bottom like this, mm -hmm. and they would fill it with beer. You had to drink off the beer and take your hand away from the bottom <laughs> to prove that you could do it. <laughs> so that was uh, college that was days. Yes. For college days, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So you must have also done pretty well at Stanford because then you went on to to Harvard Law School. So tell me how you how that evolved and what how your academic interests evolved while you're at Stanford to, to get into law. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. At least my parents thought I wanted to really? be a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I had to take science courses. But I had a uh, when I took biology, that was back in the days when dissecting frogs was a big deal. And before you did you remember dissecting frogs? Oh yeah. Sure. 
I did it so before, before, Yeah, well, we did. We tried it in high school. It didn't work so well, but we were given the frog and needle, and we were told to pith the frog by putting the needle in behind his his head so that mm-hmm. he was brain dead, but his nervous system still worked. So I did it, and the frog didn't like it. And before I got it in very far, he screamed. <laughs> You've ever heard a frog scream? And he he jumped across the lab table and around the room. And I said, this is it. I am not. I'm out of here. So I... <laughs> I just dropped. That was the end of my med- medical career. <laughs> the irony is that we have a son who's a, a veterinary surgeon, and he uh-huh. loves to cut things and look at the insides of animals. Isn't that something? Uh, did not get that from me or, or my father. We we have no <laughs> no doctors in the family. No nobody uh-huh. that, that likes that. So. Must be your wife's strain there. She's, she can look at it, but she doesn't <laughs> particularly. We don't know where he got it. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, her father was a doctor. That's true. Probably was. Mm-hmm. So how did so, law come into the equation? Well, if you were a Jewish kid, you had to be either a lawyer or a doctor. You couldn't be a rabbi. Well, you could, but your parents wanted you to be a lawyer or a doctor. That was the alternative. And, and uh, so I went to law school and I graduated from law school. I did, I did not particularly care for law school. The paper chase, I'm sure you saw the paper yes. chase. Kingsfield. Kingsfield. We had many Kingsfields, <laughs> all of whom enjoyed torturing us. So I got out of there and I wasn't a lawyer. I was a a law school graduate. I spent my first year after law school with the Office of Economic Opportunity as a lawyer on the Navajo Reservation in oh, Arizona. Wow, that's interesting. That was an interesting time because the, uh, the Navajos, uh, well, the Congress had just passed the Indian Civil Rights Act, which brought the tribes under the aegis of the federal government before they had they had their own tribal courts and they were not subject to any when i got out there the tribe was feeling the pain of this new law and they they held hearings on it and our uh, the head of the office was pretty outspoken guy and he went down to the hearings sat in the front row and the uh, vice chair of the tribe was a 300-pound woman. Whoa. And she started a, a tirade against the law. And our uh, director started laughing because he thought it was pretty funny that, that uh, they would consider themselves exempt from the law. And, of course, the Oklahoma case that was decided earlier this year hadn't yet been decided you know, where they, the tribes got something back in Oklahoma. I don't know what it was, but anyway, so he started laughing and she got upset. She came down off the dais and started pounding him. And he wasn't, he was a big guy, but he wasn't 300 pounds. Physically pounding him. Physically pounding him. Yeah, yeah. And so he, 
ran out of the chambers and back down to our office, which is about a, a 10 minute run. And, uh, about a half hour later, a, a Navajo tribal police car comes along and delivers to him a, a, an order of ban, you know, a scroll with a ban order on it and said, you have uh, one day to leave the reservation wow. and we will escort you to the border. So they did. And for the next nine months, he lived in a motel in Gallup, New Mexico. Have you ever been to Gallup, John? Yes, as a matter of fact. I have. Okay, well, you remember what Gallup was? <laughs> I didn't go to the town. I drove right through it or on, right. on the I-40. I think. That's, the best way, that's the best way to go to Gallup, or was <laughs> then. Uh, Gallup was uh, really the, uh, not, well, I won't get into, it was not a good place to be. It so, was pretty much, it was not even a cow town. It was yeah. nothing. Tell me how you got into that. I mean, what coming out of Harvard Law School, you have a lot of choices, typically. So you decided to go to the Indian Reservation after law, Harvard Law. I mean, your, your classmates were all looking at Wall Street and, and New York and places like that, and you go to, to a Navajo Reservation? Explain why and how, how I, that evolved. I had a very low draft number. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this was my way of doing national service. And I've always regretted not not going to Vietnam because I felt it was something that would have been good for my character. But my wife did not think it would be good for my existence. So she So you (laughs) were married? Were you married yeah. in law school, or were you married? Uh, we uh, we got married. We got married right after law school. Uh huh. Okay. So, she said, "You better figure out some other way to <laughs> spend service." And so, I did. Well, after and, that law training, you could have actually applied for to be a conscientious objector. I think because of well, I know, but I, I draft things. And yeah. Say no, no, I but, no, I well, I was not a conscientious objector. And again, this was, I don't want to say I objected, <laughs> objected to her objecting to my going, <laughs> but it, it, I watch a lot of military movies, a lot of war movies, and, and I always feel like I, uh, I should have been doing something. But anyway, so I was there for a year, and most of that year was spent getting our director back on the reservation. Ironically, the law firm that I joined was uh, served on the board of this uh, OEO Legal Services Group, and they took it on up to the uh, Ninth Circuit, and it was a landmark case saying that by taking him off the reservation, they had deprived the Navajos of their Sixth Amendment right to counsel. So he came back. And uh, somehow had the idea that I was responsible for his being exiled. And when he came back, I was alerted by the uh, by his deputy that he was he had it in for me, and uh, actually had a gun on his desk saying, "Is that guy Bush still with us?" And so 
I decided that was probably the time to leave the war zone. I went down to the law firm that was uh, on the, uh, that was uh, Brown and Bain. I grew up with a number of the guys who were there. This was a good example of, of the legacy industry in Phoenix. That was how you, how you got your job. So I joined them, and uh, it was a terrific law firm. We had it was founded by a guy who was a from a big New York law firm, and he expected his firm to be like his his origins. So we had referrals from the from the New York firm as our first clients. Actually, I was there. I joined at the tenth year of the firm, and his biggest client was IBM. And at that point, IBM was engaged in an antitrust suit with the government where they were taking depositions in every state of the union. And a lot of the guys thought that was a great idea. So they went around doing that. I I was not interested particularly in that. So I went on to the corporate side and we had some very interesting clients, real estate clients. We had a bank holding company client. So I I did uh, banking and securities and real estate work, and uh, I became very active in the Jewish community. I was uh, on the board of a couple of organizations, uh, Jewish Family and Children's Service. So we would still be there today, but my wife was from Boston, and she said, we were there 10 years, and she said, you know, I haven't seen a tree yet, <laughs> and I said, which wasn't really strictly true, but she said, we, we need to leave, go someplace other than Phoenix. And at that time, Phoenix was, was not, it wasn't a cultural desert, but it was not Boston, and it was not New York. So my uh, her relatives, my, our in-laws, had moved to Washington with Jimmy Carter. I had spent a summer there after uh, after college uh, as an intern, uh, but we didn't know anything about it. Uh, she had never been there. One of my classmates went to law school with Dave Rutstein. Oh, sure. And he said, Dave is... Dave just left Dan San- what was then Dan Sansky Dickey and moved to Giant as their new general counsel and and he was looking for a real estate counsel. So I flew back and met with Dave and it was instant simpatico. We we both felt this the same way about a lot of things. I was one of the luckiest luckiest uh, moves of my life. I spent the next 20 years there. Yeah. So, well, you know, because you were, you were here, the retail industry at that time was, was fascinating. We had 80 landlords, Peterson, Federal, uh, Saul. I, I, you were at Saul for a while. Of course. Yeah, that's where I met you. And, yeah. Uh, I remember and, calling you one time. We were refinancing, you know, flagship, I think, or something like that. And 
I called, I can't remember the perspective. It's the first time I ever talked to you, and it was in the mid-80s. I'd come here about 85, and I called, and, and I remember hanging up the phone. Wow, he's the head of Giant Food. He's such a nice guy. I said, wow, this is great. Yeah. So I really enjoyed, you know, I knew that when you called me about REAP, I said, absolutely, I'm in. I, I'd love to do it. So I'll never forget that. Talk a little bit about your years at Giant. And so we'll get into, you mentioned Dave Rutstein, who I never actually met. I think I've talked to him on the phone a couple times. But the guy I'd like to really get into with in your impression is uh, the family legacy owner of Giant Food, and that's uh, Izzy, Israel Izzy Cohen. Talk about well, I just, about, I, about yeah, I, I just have to mention one other landlord, John. I don't know whether you okay. guys ran, ran into him, but Combined Properties oh, sure. was a big, big landlord of ours. Yeah. yeah, and that's a whole nother uh, story. The um, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I interviewed Kathy Bonifay, who was chairman of, or, you know, not chairman, but she was uh, president of Combined for many years. Right, right. Because Gary Rappaport was there before he started his company. So sure. two of my podcast guests have been, uh, had been at that firm and, and knew and worked for both Herbert and Ronald Haft, who were the father and son team that ran the company. Herbie was uh, uh, famous, of course, for his pompadour. When we uh, did a grand reopening of, of our store out in, uh, I'm forgetting, somewhere on Route 50, he pulled up in his limousine, and uh, Izzy was there to greet him, and, and Izzy put out his hand to shake his hand, and Herb, Herb said, wait a second, I think I see something in the store that I like. And he went over to the Hazel Bishop hairspray, which we had on an end cap, and he put his arms around as many of the of the cans as he could and went out to the car and he told his driver to pop the trunk and he dumped all of them in the trunk and then he came back in and <laughs> said hello to Izzy. <laughs> so that was one of his nicer days. So anyway, and of course you 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 knew the people at Saul and we won't talk about them and Federal Steve Gutman was there. Steve helped pick Gary. Gary asked Steve to help start REAP, and Federal was one of our first employers, along with, with Saul, along with Combined, mm -hmm. Peterson, Rouse. As tough as these guys were, they wanted to do more business with us. So mm -hmm. when I called them to uh, be employers, they said... <laughs> Oh, well, <laughs> here's another harebrained idea of Bush. So we'll go along with it. And uh, that was, of course, toward the end of my, my career there. Sure. They didn't know that, right. and, and I didn't know it. But, it, you know, going back to your question about Izzy, working for him was like getting two or three master's degrees because <laughs> he, just, he just radiated business sense and to be able to to learn from him was uh an extraordinary experience and it was uh, what lessons did you what lessons did you learn from israel izzy Cohen? i mean what what did he teach you that you you carry today that 
you know, what were the, some of the best lessons he, he taught? Well, one, one, of, one of his lessons, this was more of a practical lesson. I joined Giant. Uh, my first day on the job was Labor Day 1979. And Labor Day is September, but it snowed. And that was the day oh. we opened. Yeah, that wow. was the day we opened. Right. <laughs> that was the day we opened our O Street store. And so Steve Osseroff, whom you knew uh, yes, well, I and yeah. I were there. And Izzy's rule was two inches of snow. You had to bring in the snow plows. And of course, in September, the plows were not ready to go. <laughs> but uh, there were some shovels in the in the back room, and Izzy said, "You guys are real estate. Get the shovels. Get the lot cleared." So <laughs> you and Steve was, were shoveling snow that morning. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that was my first experience with him. That's uh, you may recall that Superfresh was still doing business in Washington. It was and A&P, wasn't it? It, it was A&P, excuse me, yeah. it was A&P. Right. And Izzy, he knew he couldn't drive Safeway out. He had driven Kroger out before I got there. He did a, did a price war with Kroger and kept them, I think Richmond was as close as they got. And uh, so he decided to do a price war against Superfresh. They had two stores then that... Uh, he was interested in one was in McLean and the other was in Bethesda and both of them closed. So this was 1982. I was still a lawyer. And uh, so the next two years I spent negotiating the McLean lease and the Bethesda lease. And we opened someplace special. I don't know if you were here yet. That was our gourmet store. Yes. In in McLean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They sold everything from. Yep. Uh, it's still there, actually. I think. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not a. It's not someplace special anymore. No. No. That, yeah. The, the the store is the building is still there, but the business was all transferred across the street to uh, to the McLean Shopping Center. The giant owned. Well, I don't know. If we, yeah. Yeah. We owned it. That was Osseroff Center. That ran for a while, but our operators really were not. They did not think the way of Balducci's or or Whole Foods. They were they were grocers. They were not uh, that lasted about ten years, and Bethesda store became a a freestanding drugstore, and that was also the uh, this was interesting the uh, the grocery business and the pharmacy business both tangled over health and beauty aids. They each wanted credit for the revenue and the profits, and grocers won out. So uh, by that time, we we had opened more in-store pharmacies where we could and so mm-hmm. forth. But anyway, it, Izzy's, to give you an idea of his uh, the way he operated, we had a store in Bailey's Crossroads, a small store, mm-hmm. and he wanted a big store. And he wanted to build it on the north end of the center where it is now. But the land landlady, who was Janice Levin, of, she was Philip Levin's widow. And Philip Levin was the guy that built Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. So uh, she was also our landlord at uh, one other place, which I can't remember. But anyway, 
we persuaded her to come down and look at our flagship store, which was then really something. We had, we had put the gourmet, we, we had spun the someplace special gourmet around the back of the store there. This is on Rockville and, Pike. This yeah, Rockville, Rockville Pike. Pike. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And uh, mm-hmm. so she came down and, and uh, Izzy was in front of the store waiting for her. She pulled up in her white limousine got out and she was quite a handsome woman and Izzy was a good looking guy horses racing horses so they chatted a little bit about that and she was still pretty reserved so they went in into the store and started in around counterclockwise which was the way the stores were set up then and as we passed the flower department I was behind behind them with her business guy and as we went past the flower department, I saw Izzy reach out his hand and sort of give a little finger snap to the flower person. And they continued on around. And as they got around to the far corner, the flower person ran up behind him like a, 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 in a relay race, a baton. Sure. And put, and put a corsage in his hand, which he palmed. And then they got around to the front of the store and she said, well, it's been very nice, Mr. Cohen. And and he said, well, it's been very nice, Mrs. Levin. He said, I'd like you to have this as a reminder of of your visit. And he brings the corsage up and says, do you mind if I pin this on you? And it was a beautiful orchid. And she said, well, (laughs) so... So that was it. We made the deal. <laughs> it only took three more years to negotiate the lease because it was not just a lease, but it was it, we built a new store on the north end of the center around from Burlington Coat. That took a while. He was quite uh, a salesman, wasn't he? He was an amazing salesman. I mean, I tell you, he he did business with people that, well, I'm, I won't name any names, but people that were Hard to do business with. And well, he was. Herb Haft is one of them, certainly. So if he did business with. Oh, nah, nah. Herb, Herb was like, as he would say, he was a pussycat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some of the food vendors that he dealt with were tough, tough cookies as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He wasn't easy on, on us either. He was very demanding. We, we had a, uh, I can't remember the number of the store, store 97. Store 97 in Towson, not an area that you would necessarily know, and it certainly wasn't an area I that I necessarily yeah. You know where it is? Okay. Oh, so, sure. Of course. So that, that's where, I um, can't remember, the, uh, the Colts football player had a… Uh, Johnny Unitas. And as he came into my office, the store there was built in the 60s. It was a small mm-hmm. store, but it was doing, sure. doing something like 600 thousand a week which was very good for a store without a pharmacy so he comes into my office and sits down and he says mike he says you know store 97 i said yes sir he said you know that store is doing 600 a week and if we had a bigger store we could be doing a million (laughs) i said yes sir and he said well you know he says there's a park right behind the store I said, yes. <laughs> I didn't know where he was going exactly. Uh-huh. He says, well, he says, why don't we build a, a, a new store in that park? 
and then we'll tear down the old store. We'll have all the parking we need for the new store. And I said, well, I said, it's a park. And he said, I just said that. And I said, well, it, it's, not, it's, it's not zoned for, um, Retail. for a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And I said, it's an active park. So he pulls his glasses down on his nose and he says, he says, tell me again, why did I hire you? Why did I hire you? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so, were you were you head of real estate at that time or were you I was, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You were not you were not an attorney. No, this was this was this was business. This was probably okay. the late eighties, early nineties. Okay. And I got in my car and I drove up there that that day and looked around and sure enough, I remembered it correctly. There was a Forge Park was right behind the store mm-hmm. and there were kids playing baseball there and there was a tot lot and tennis courts and so on and so forth. So we went up there and started meeting with the neighbors and the neighbors thought it was a great idea. There were five civic associations and they all said, we'll support you. I met with each one of them. It was one of my early land use, early entitlement process experiences. You know, how do you, how do, you do it? Oh, sure. We did drawings and uh, so on and so forth. And our, our landlord then was, uh, I think it was Mid-Atlantic Properties, Pat Hughes. I don't know if you Mark, ever knew Mark, Pat. Sure. Yeah, I did. Yeah, right. Mark. Mm-hmm. Right, Mark. Yep. Pat was all excited about it. Is naturally I mean, great for him. He he wouldn't have to put any money into it. So we got approval from all the neighborhoods, and we decided to. Uh, we were up for approval, and and we I don't remember. I think we had to have some. We had to have a public hearing under the entitlement rules, so we had it at at the high school, and Barry Shear and O'Donna were there, sitting in the front row, and. I was up on stage with Roger Pompey, whom you may remember. He was our architect, fantastic guy. I remember Roger. No. Uh, he would always bring a roll of bumwa to a meeting. And, you know, that's the tissue paper that the architects right, sure. sketch on. Uh-huh. Yep. And he would, he would do uh, drawings. And, and then if, we, if they didn't like them, he would just tear off the sheet and crumple it up. And, and we'd say, well, it's just lines on a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I was up on stage making this presentation and the back doors of the auditorium open and a bunch of little kids in baseball outfits with bats and balls march in saying, Save our ball field. Save our ball field. <laughs> and right behind them is Channel 7. Uh-oh. Seven on your side. Yeah. And that was the end of that project. And Barry and O'Donna were trying to hide under their seats. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went back the next day and pulled the application. And I went in and told Izzy and he said, well, I, I knew it wouldn't work, but we had to try it. <laughs> and so I, I said, uh, got a lesson there. <laughs> yeah. And 
So then we started getting calls from all those civic associations. And they said, what, what happened? And I said, well, you saw what happened. You were watching television that night if you weren't in the audience. And they mm-hmm. said, well, we still need a new store. What, yeah. What's going on here? So I said, well, let me tell you why we can't do it. We have to do it where in the parking lot. And we have to tear down what's there. We have to tear down Johnny Unitas' place. So they said, well, we'll support you on that. And I said, well, we have a problem also because there's not enough parking. We would have zero setback against the property line, which is a violation of the zoning code. And they said, well, we'll take care of that. You just come up with a plan. So we did. And the county waived all. They waived parking. They waived landscaping. They waived setback. And we built the new store. Mm. <laughs> so I don't, there's a lesson there somewhere, but I'm not sure what it is. We had no plan B, but the community came up with it, which was a very good, again, a very good lesson in entitlement process. You know, make sure you got the community on your side. It's interesting in that, you know, to have the community advocate for additional density in retail on a site is certainly an upside-down situation, typically, that you see in retail or in development. Or in anything, yeah. It is a little different. But, you know, Baltimore County's, you know, been known to being a pro-business area to some extent. So, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me too much. A little bit of a contrast to Montgomery County, Maryland. Let's put it that way. <laughs> In yeah. my experience living here, so well, there were county executives in Baltimore County that made things happen that were a surprise to everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some of them got uh, things that they didn't think they were entitled to, like free room and board at the county's expense. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. So talk about no a few other no. a couple, a couple other interesting giant food, you know, stories that you, you could think of that might have been interesting. So, for instance, so Giant went through ownership changes, and uh, so Sam Lehrman, who was the other family that owned the business, decided to sell his portion of the company, and I think that was either the late '80s or the early '90s to a group called Sainsbury, which is a British group. How did that, if at all, change the culture of giant food at the time and the philosophy of the company? I know Izzy was still there and still CEO. I imagine that it didn't change too much, but I imagine he, they had to adapt a little bit to what their uh, thought process was at the time. The Lehrmans did not control the, the board. So the fact that they owned his, they owned the Lehrman shares didn't change the control. What it, what it changed was that Sainsbury's people insisted on coming in and, and hearing more about the company. And so I spent a fair amount of time taking their real estate guy around the area and showing him what we were doing. But uh, the Sainsbury it was more of, of an annoyance to Izzy. I enjoyed it because the Sainsbury guy was a, was a uh, rugby player 
and uh, loved to talk about his his rugby days. And also, he was he had been the head of a big legal gambling company in in England. I don't remember the name of it. So he, he was a pretty interesting guy, but nothing happened. You know, prior to that, when I came to Giant, there was just Giant and Safeway. By the time Sainsbury came around, Harris Teeter had started to come in. I think Trader Joe's, Balducci's, and so shoppers forth. Shoppers food, of course. Shoppers, had. yeah. Shoppers was a factor. They're, they're not anymore. And yep. we were cannibalizing our, our own stores. So that every time we opened a store, about a third of the business came from an existing store, which as long as we were playing good defense and we were keeping a competitor out, it made sense. But after a while, even that didn't make sense. So in the early 90s, we, we I mean, the real estate group began suggesting that we needed to go into the Delaware Valley meaning Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, yep. which was one of the great sales experiences of my life because I ended up creating all the marketing material and doing all the site visits and so forth. And it was new territory. And so we had a lot of, a lot of fun. We ended up taking the management committee on bus tours. I used to that they didn't like to sit on a bus the whole day and get on the bus sure. and land over and go up there because we all we we had to go up and come back in one day they didn't want to spend any time up there and i ended up sort of being the uh maitre d of the bus trip <laughs> and they they were not particularly interested in the demographics or the potential or anything like that so i had to learn a whole bunch of new jokes and to keep them entertained, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was bizarre. I mean, I could have gone into stand-up at that point with all the stuff that I learned. Anyway, the, the, the reason this is important for the, for the Sainsbury and Ahold story is that we, we were invading a territory that was already owned by Ahold in uh, Pennsylvania because they, they owned giant of Carlisle. Right, sure. Carlisle had some very good stores there and some very good locations. And we, mm -hmm. uh, they weren't so much in Delaware and New Jersey, but they were in Pennsylvania. So long story short, it's not so short at this point. Owl persuaded Sainsbury to sell out because they were not doing well here. They had a, I think they had an operation. They bought some stores in California. Uh, mm -hmm. They could see they weren't making any headway against Izzy. They sold to Ahold, and the management committee at that time was getting older and uh, thought that that would be a good idea. So end result was that Ahold ended up owning the whole company. And at that time, Ahold was run by the Stop and Shop. Ahold USA was run by the Stop and Shop group out of Quincy. And they ran all the American stores, including Giant of Carlisle, and decided the FTC had to approve the deal. And the FTC said, you guys have too much overlap in yeah. Pennsylvania. 
Mm-hmm. So we ended up having to fire sale our six Pennsylvania stores, each of which cost roughly five to six million dollars a piece. Wow. Wow. And we had to fire sale them for about a million dollars each, which was probably one of the worst experiences I ever had, not only because of the losses, which Stop and Shop didn't care about, but because I had to go to landlords who in some cases had approval rights. And so those negotiations were were very painful because uh, the, we, we did our deals with with real people and we were saying okay these either we're going to close this store or somebody who hasn't got the credit or the operating experience that giant has is going to going to take them and so we had we had some serious uh, serious fights uh one of izzy's mottos was we're we're lovers not fighters <laughs> but by that time he he had died. He died in 95. And uh, the stop and shop people, well, whether you were a lover or a fighter, you still had to divest the store. Yep. So that happened and, and stop and shop figured they could run the business better than we could. So they gave us our walking papers, the, uh, all the, all the officers. And uh, that was that. Uh, so let, let me segue just for a moment into a story that led up to that a little bit. So in about 1996 or so, you had a new CFO at the time, a guy by the name of Mark Barry. Yes. And I can't remember exactly how I met Mark, but I met him and I, I maybe just got a call, phone call, maybe as a referral from either you or Steve at the time. He said, John, come on over and meet. And so he sat down and he offered me the opportunity to value the entire giant food GFS realty portfolio. Mm. And so I took that on and I said, because I had financed a lot of giant food centers and I was very interested in it, thinking that, ooh, this might be an opportunity for financing. He looked at me in the eye and he said, John, don't expect to get financing business out of this. This is purely an evaluation. I knew there was something big going on, though, obviously. This wasn't something they would hire a third party to do unless there was something going to happen. So I knew this was leading up to something big. So I spent about three months, and I, it was probably 30 shopping centers, but I didn't do a full appraisal of each one. We did a, a synoptic, so that would, and you probably saw it, what, what I prepared at the time but it was probably four or five pages on each property. A synoptic valuation was more of an investment value. We didn't do all the, you know, the comps and everything you would do in a full appraisal. But it was an interesting experience. I have to say I learned an awful lot. I saw all the rent rolls, all the major leases of the centers and all the land use issues. Some of them were leaseholds. It was, it was a fascinating experience. And I thought I could use that information someday. So I got, uh, when everything was all said and done, I said, you know, what's the situation? He said, yeah, here, well, I'll give you a confidentiality agreement. And at a certain point in time, you're released from it. You can do whatever you want with that information. It was probably two years later. Hmm. 
But by that time, the Ahol deal had already closed. This was in anticipation of that. So it was an interesting process. I learned an awful lot about the company and about the, uh, about the real estate from, from that situation. So I don't know if you had known that I had done that, but I just thought I'd share that. I, I didn't. I didn't know that you did it. No, I, uh, uh, you, work, you worked with Steve very closely, of course, uh, yes. on that, I presume. I, I mean, I did. Yeah. Very close and, to Steve and, and, and Peter Melman. Right. And Steve was very excited when you came up with the final value because our previous CFO, who retired and was replaced by Mark Berry, Steve felt he never gave enough credit to Steve for the value that he had created. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a guy who had difficulty giving credit to anybody. So uh, enough said about that. Yeah, Steve was real excited when that came in. <laughs> and he said, see, see? <laughs> well, Steve and I actually afterward, and I told this story in the Jody McLean podcast that we just did, I just recorded recently, just went out, that, you know, he and I put together a deal with Gary Rappaport and Hap Stein of Regency Centers, and we were going to go pursue the entire portfolio from Ahold. And we actually put a full offer in on it, and it sat up Quint- in Quincy for quite some time. A year later, I learned that Edens had acquired the entire portfolio. And I said, gee, I think we set the table on that one. But then Jody told the story how they came at it. It was because they had done business with, uh, with Ahold up in, New- up in Boston with the Samuels portfolio. And that's how they had developed the relationship. So it's funny how things evolve. So yeah. it was interesting to hear that. Yeah. Well, you, and you know, you never know if you're a stalking horse for right. somebody else. We thought we would rebuild Bethesda Row. And mm-hmm. Steve and I were talking with Tom Miller. And in the meantime, Federal Realty was talking with Tom Miller. And yep. they were talking faster <laughs> <laughs> with, with more credibility and not as much money, maybe. But they, they did a 99-year ground lease. And uh, we, we had just begun. We had optioned the lumber yard on the north sure. west corner, and we ended up just uh, flipping the option to them. Yeah, I remember when they bought, Edens bought seven of our centers, I think. That's right. Yeah. They bought Cascades first, and that's, she said Cascades was the first deal. Yeah. They kind of opened the door, and they closed very quickly on it. And because of that, then that triggered the opportunity for the rest of the properties. And they had raised money from the state of Michigan's pension fund. And so they had the money in the bank to ready to, to go. Now, certainly the team I put together could have easily delivered that too, but they just didn't have the relationship that Edens had developed already. So we were yeah. just kind of late in the game. But interestingly, I learned a lot from that experience. I have to say it was interesting. Well, you just described the way business works, John. The relationships are much more important than the money. I mean, if the money is anywhere equal, and even if it's not equal, people are going to go with people they know. That's right. And that was one of the downsides of having to fire sale those stores because we got sure. we spent a lot of time getting to know those people, and then we we had to stick a, a knife in them. Was that the first kind of appraisal like that that you did? The, well, the, I typically wasn't an appraiser. You know, I was a mortgage banker. So, but what we had to do for our committees for lenders 
you know, there was the same process. You had to put together what we called the committee sheet for the lender. So as a mortgage banker, you know, we represented life companies typically, and they had each had their own committee sheets that they had to prepare for each loan that they wanted to get done. Mm-hmm. Usually part of our offering memorandum to the lender included, you know, we kind of reverse engineered their committee report. So they would take that committee, what we prepared, and, pre- and present it to the committee with their own understanding of the deal internally to get it approved. So that's in essence what I tried to do with the giant valuation was to more or less set it up so that a board of directors could look at it and say, okay, now I understand the deal. That's all. It was a board of directors type approach to an underwriting. So, if, And you know, were, were you ever asked to come in to talk about your report or was that? Yeah. So no. with, with Steve, with Steve, so he could. No, I mean, it, just in general, before, before the, uh, the, for the GFS deal, when you made these preparations, were you ever asked to come in as the outside expert where the, the, your, your client's people were not actually being believed? It was occasionally that. I mean, you know, our lenders, for instance, might call me. They'd be in committee, and they'd call me on the phone and say, John, we're trying to get some clarity on this. So I may have to explain something, but I usually wouldn't make the full presentation. Uh, I'd leave that to the person with, within the lender who would do it. Nor, normally, I would not have to do an exogenous presentation outside the thing, nor would I have to fly up to the lender's office and do a formal presentation. I did that for relationships, though. So we would bring our clients, our developer clients, sometimes to the lender to meet them if they were large deals, particularly. So, uh, you know, for instance... Our group would bring, I brought Oliver Carr to Columbus, Ohio one time. So we met with Nationwide Life. Or and I brought him up to, to Hartford, Connecticut to meet with Aetna one time. So we'd done, you know, I did over $300 million worth of deals with him. So it was, you know, those kinds of relationships, I would do that. So that was the thing. So let's, uh, let's transition a little bit. So you, you all got your walking papers. That was what about 1997 or eight, something like that. Uh, it was uh, actually 2000 because oh, 2000. they okay. they needed to uh, have some time to to look at the operations. They didn't think they needed a lot, but they they ran it the real estate guys up in uh, Quincy were uh, looking at everything more, and we were we we were asked to find or help help find our our successors my guy was uh, roger uh was the former head of yeah was the former head of real estate for heckinger so there was a period of six months where i was basically supposed to be teaching him he was he was a very quick learner he didn't need more than a month but in any case it was the best thing that happened to me because if i had stayed with giant i Reap would have continued as a weekend and evening program and, and would never have gotten beyond that. You were, were doing it for three years at that point. You were yeah. already yeah. had it yeah. up and running. Our, so our first class. About, yeah. yeah. Our first class was 1998. Yep. And uh, then we did one in 1999. 2000, we had a hiccup because 
we had been partnering with the Urban League to do the recruiting. And they said, well, you're, you know, our mission is serving the poor, poor, and you guys are really serving the middle class. They didn't see the, the potential. I'm not sure I saw the potential, but in any event, they, they said, we can't help you anymore. We don't have the staff or budget to do this. Mm-hmm. So we were paying them. I mean, REAP was paying them. But so anyway, uh, 2001, we were moving more slowly. And then I met a guy named Charlie Ackerman, who was uh, one of the big private developers in Atlanta. Right. And uh, he said, you've got to come to Atlanta. And, and I said, well, our, our next city is New York because we were being underwritten by ICSC and Mike Kirshenbaugh was putting a lot of pressure on us to come to New York. And Sure. But I didn't know any people in New York at that time. And Charlie said, I will introduce you to all the people you need to know in Atlanta. And he was at, he was at that time in his 60s. No, probably in his 70s. Yeah, in his 70s. And he was the kind of guy you didn't say no to. <laughs> he was, you know, he would just grab you by the scruff of the neck. So we came to Atlanta. I didn't know anything about Atlanta. He got Simon Property involved there and several of the smaller companies. And he got Cushman. No, he didn't get Cushman. We, We got Cushman. Yeah. Cushman's CEO was being honored by the American Jewish Committee in New York. So I went up there and visited with him and he was mildly interested, but he said, let's, let's go ahead. So we got them involved in Atlanta. And uh, Great. so our first class there was 02, and then we did another one, 03. We had Home Depot was an employer, Simon, Ackerman, and so forth. So we were operating in Atlanta until, and Washington until 2006. Mm-hmm. And then... I got a call from Kershaw saying Walmart wants to be involved in the program. Wow. So you, you've got to get them involved. So I, I, I called Eric Zorn was then the president of, of Walmart Realty. He came. I don't remember whether how we met. I know I went to Bentonville at one point, but it was later on. Maybe Las Vegas. Did you mean about there? Uh, probably because I was still ICSC was still doing recon there. Sure. But anyway, 2006, as you recall, we the U.S. economy was in full swing. Oh yeah. For many wrong reasons. Oh yeah. So we had the biggest class we ever had in New York. We had 35 people and 17 of them placed, which was usually your you know, we've got six or seven people placed. Seven of them went to Walmart. Six of them went to McDonald's. Several went to Simon. I forget where the others went, but it was a fabulous placement. And we were now in three cities. Yeah. Talk about the infrastructure and how you recruited people to teach and how you built your curriculum a little bit. I'm kind of curious how that happened, Mike. The model was still introducing talent to opportunity in the okay. in a very simple sense, which meant that you had to put the talent in front of the prospective employer. So our employers were all 
all had the promise to to teach, to host networking events, and then to hire someone from the class. Mm-hmm. And some of them hired one, some of them hired, well, I mean, like Walmart hired, as I say, seven uh, mm-hmm. out of the class. McDonald's hired, hired six. So the model hadn't changed. In terms of the instructor, we pretty much had to run with what they wanted to teach because they all had their own approach to uh, whatever it was that they were doing. So McDonald's had one approach and Walmart had another approach. And by and large, we migrated from property management to development, which turns out to be a much more interesting field and which is, you know, basically what, how I built the, uh, the uh, Georgetown course around. Although, of course, it was a retail development when it started. When I taught, you had modules. Yeah. So, so I, I taught the finance module with, with Brian Barlow. But you also had a, a marketing module, as I recall. You had a property management module. And it was obviously because of your background, retail was the main thrust. But I know it evolved to getting into more of the office operations and development side, as well as other disciplines. I don't know if you went in the residential route at all, but in my experience, it was mostly the retail angle. Although our financial analysis wasn't all retail, we at least talked about the office market a little bit as well, as I remember. You remember the last year you guys taught together in Phoenix, I mean, in Washington? I don't. It was early 2000s, maybe. 2001 or two, maybe. I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you built the model that we tried to, uh, we tried out to do in the other cities. And mm-hmm. of course, at that time, financial software was not where it is today. Although we did have a guy in Atlanta who was, he was an appraiser and he wanted us to start teaching Argus and, uh, Prudential, Prudential was a sponsor in Atlanta mm-hmm. and Prudential said there's no point in learning Argus because we're going to send you to Chicago or Indianapolis and you're going to learn the Prudential way to do it and and a lot of the companies had their own that's where uh, I started yeah right that's right mm-hmm. and what's the name of the guy at Northwestern Mutual here Bill uh, uh Bill uh testing Bill, my so- memory Right. So he, he had his own, he had his own way and he hired people here. You know, as far as I was concerned, these guys were like you, very experienced at what they knew. And there was no way I could guess it at what they should be teaching. I, you know, I figured, Hey, if this works for your company, it's going to work for every other company because, you know, value is income divided by cap rate. And that, that's, that's right. That's all I knew and all I needed to know. <laughs> sure. So yeah. I've gotten a little more knowledgeable since then. You and Brian basically acquainted me with with that aside. And uh, was Bill Bill Norton? So I'm trying to remember. That's it, Northwestern. Bill Norton. Was yes. Bill, was Bill part of your your sponsorship yeah. program at one time? Well, that's yeah. Great. Yeah. Northwestern Mutual. He's a great guy. Uh, yeah, he hired one of our people and she was there for three or four years and then decided she really would be more comfortable in property management where she still is. 
I can't remember the company she's with now, but she, she, and she manages office because at some point we brought in multifamily and office. And so we have, we have people now with um, multifamily REITs and office REITs and we have people with Clarion partners that do mixed use. So it's a very different, but that's good because obviously there are more opportunities. Property management is an entry level for the industry itself. It's where if you got a nephew that needs a job, you say, okay, here, <laughs> you co-manage this building or this uh, retail property or something. We're much broader now. Uh, and the interesting thing is that we are still the only, REAP is the only outfit public or private, that does what we do. There are no 501c3s or private or anybody that does this. And one reason is because it's hard. (laughs) 23 years later, and there's still no other firm that does the empowerment empowerment aspect for the minority community in real estate. That's quite a message, and it's interesting. It was reinforced in the podcast that I did recently with John John Green and Joe Carroll. Yeah, and, and Joe uh, taught for me. Uh, I don't know if he mentioned it, but he taught the Hepburn project. You know, the one right. that over yep. the Hilton swimming pool. Uh, he spoke very highly of his experience with Project Reed. He was, he was very well. He he, he was. Uh, he didn't go through Reap. Of course, he went through. Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School, a joint degree. Oh, sure. But I mean, as far as teaching the students. And, yeah. Right. Now, he was good. And, you know, every time these guys teach, they bring a new perspective and give me new ideas about, about how we're going to do it the next time. And today, I don't teach for, for REAP. I teach at Georgetown. And Washington is such a fascinating laboratory for projects. A little less fascinating today because of what's what's happening, but there are certain areas uh, like Atlantic Plumbing, the uh, the nine thirty club right. area, which is one right. focus. Friendship Heights is another focus. City Center is another, and so I pick sites uh, to talk about. Spring Valley is another one. Uh, McMillan, yes. Noma? About Noma, you ever look at Noma? I don't. Why don't I? Well, that's a good Eden, question, John. And Eden, I guess I should. Eden's, Eden's has done quite a project there called Yeah. Uh, the well, the ballpark. Yeah, that's south, Brand, southeast, southwest. Yeah, we've had uh, W. C. Smith teaching. Matt Smith. Matt Ritz taught Sorry. last year. It's uh, H Street Corridor. You looked at that. H, at all? H. Yeah, that was he. Yeah, he taught the. Uh, the joint venture with him and and Gary Gary Rappaport yeah yeah and Gary Gary of course has taught and we use Gary's textbook uh, the two basic textbooks for for the Georgetown course are Gary's investing in real estate and this right <laughs> second second edition <laughs> yes. and and the ULI mixed use uh, handbook. And then there's a very uh, nice little book that came out a couple of years ago by a guy named John McNellis. Oh, called I've, How to, I've read that book. Yeah, and it's uh, 80, 80 pages. 
very crisp. And uh, so we use that. But beyond that, I try to have the instructors bring their own presentations to the table. I guess I'm talking to a potential instructor here. Now I got to get serious. Well, <laughs> I would highly recommend as, your, as a senior advisor to make sure that they reel back to my first episode of the podcast and start listening to all of them because I think they would be they would benefit from it. All the students would. These are some sage people that have gone through quite a bit in their careers to, to get where they are. So I want to get to a couple points with you, Mike, that John Green and Joe Carroll talked about in their in their episode, and they said that only two percent of senior executives in our industry, in the real estate industry, are are people of color, of senior executives, whereas other industries now have 15 to, and up to 30%, depending on the industry, of minority or women in senior management. Why do you think real estate has been so much of a laggard? And if anybody could answer this question, I think you could, because no one else has kind of butted up against that issue longer than you have uh, in the industry. It's pretty simple, and it goes back to what we started talking about. It's, it's a legacy. When we started out, uh, I remember the Washington Post carried uh, an article. I don't remember who the company was, but the, they interviewed the, um, the CEO, and he had, he had 17 executives, 16 white guys, one white woman. And the question was, how is it that in this city you don't have any black people on your team? And he said very straightforwardly, well, he said, when you go to hire, you like to hire people you know. So you look at your friends and your family. I'm white. So I hire white people. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he didn't think anything about saying it. He, he wasn't saying that he wouldn't hire one. What he was saying is, I don't know anyone. That's the whole objective of REAP is to introduce black talent. And so we, we shine a light on black talent, male and female. And once, once the hiring executive meets the talent, it's very hard for them to overlook it. And it's better for the firm to hire that person than to hire somebody's nephew or golf partner or the son of their banker or their brother-in-law. And so for REAP, if you hire the talent, you will get the diversity. And I know that the industry is now saying, well, we've got to get the diversity because the talent is there. And I, I think the, the right way to, to do it is to focus on the talent and introduce the talent. And that, that's part of what you're doing, John. I mean, the, the Green and, and Carroll discussion, I mean, you know, how many, not, not everybody went to Harvard Business School, but that's certainly not the only place to go to get talent. You've got, you've got the HBCUs, you've got, especially like FAMU, uh, Florida AMU. Howard University uh, right here in Washington. Howard and, and uh, Hampton and Tuskegee and, and Eastern Carolina, Eastern Tennessee. So, I mean, there are a lot of real estate talent comes out of Maryland. So the trick is to get them in front of the hiring people. And 
what's happened uh, and you know you're active in ULI so you probably know that back in July was I think it was in June ULI took a, a step that no other trade association has taken which was to issue this manifesto that said we're we're going to change our whole pattern we're going to start changing our our board our staff our members we're going to bring in more people of color and uh, gwyneth cote who's the president of their americas group is on the REIT board and she has really followed through with that and and so the uh, one result has been that the fall academy is going to be a joint program nationwide zooming uli and uh, reap to whoever wants to sign on that's great so it's pretty remarkable plus uli has councils in what 40 cities like the one you serve on here yep those are all networking and education environments absolutely so and that's where it'll happen and and uh it's already happened with a number of people that i've either introduced to uli or who in the who were in real estate 101 classes did, did you teach any of those classes real estate 101 for uli washington i only served as a you know kind of one of those mentors they had that big night where they had 40 or 50 guys come in so i'd come in and Right. Sit for the table of young people. And I'm also on the mentorship program. So I've been right. a mentor now for 15 years and have right. a class every year. So I'm very active with young people. And most of my clients are in their 30s or 20s, you know, 30, mostly 30s. So those now, are, that's who I do business with. You, you don't have to answer this, but how many of the people you mentor are people of color? Well, right now I have one who is one of four in my group. I've mentored many in the past and, and women. Good. And I encourage women and I encourage people of color. I mean, so I, I try to, you know, I mean, obviously I have a mastermind group and that's how John and Joe are in that group. And John actually lives in my neighborhood. And uh, I really feel strongly about, you know, bringing that element into the community. It's important. It's really important for us socially and for the country. And I wanted to get your viewpoint on what's happened recently. I, my sense is this is a shot in the arm for Project Re. what's going on around the country. In that yeah, well, it, the awareness is there, at least, more than it used to be. Yeah, well, the BLM movement has uh, definitely triggered a response in, in all industries, not, not just real estate. Probably the most important thing was to get ULI focused on it because yep. once ULI gets focused on something, it's like Urban Plan. They figure out all kinds of ways to make things happen. So a number of our more experienced people are being invited to attend the fall meeting and to join product councils and so That's forth. Great. And That's and great. they will be they will be ambassadors for the people that they know because each of them has their own network. A number of companies are appointing CDO, chief diversity officers or chief diversity and inclusion officers. Yes. Whether that actually changes anything, 
remains to be seen. I'm working with a number of them because, interestingly enough, they, they don't necessarily know each other, but I know them from all the people that I've met over the years. So I'm introducing them to each other. And then if they, right. have, a, if they have a council of, uh, of each other to share ideas and tactics, you know, it's very easy for a company to appoint a CDO, put them in a corner and, and say, we have a CDO and put that on their website. And, but obviously that doesn't do anything because I've, I've seen CDOs come and go over the, over the past 20 years. What they need to do is give them a staff and budget and hiring authority so that they can bring in people and say, I w- not necessarily you have to hire this person, but you must interview this person. And then you have to tell me why they are not better than this other person that you're interviewing who came in as a friend of the, of the family. And it's a tough job. And it's a thankless job because the people that you want to do the hiring are not going to thank you for putting them through the experience. The only one who might thank you is the CEO if they're properly motivated, but probably they're going to hear quietly from their colleagues, this guy is really a problem. This guy, this, this woman is really a problem for us. They're a nag and they're, they're a drag on business. And P.S., they're taking a part of my revenue if it's in the brokerage area. In the brokerage area, as you know from, from uh, Ernie Jarvis's uh, latest programs and we have probably in the, in the four to 500 people we have across the country, maybe half a dozen are brokers. Mm-hmm. Very hard. Very hard. Even, even though they're very productive when they get the chance. Sure. All you have it's to do is read the names. It's a, yeah, it's a good old boy network. The brokerage yeah. industry is. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what you know, it's who you know at brokerage typically. It's, you know, it's always been relationships completely relationship driven but you got to know what you're doing on you're on the firing line though and, oh yeah uh, oh yeah i'm not i'm not you know yeah. there are some really good black brokers in the city not including you know willard freeman's another one i mean there's some really talented guys out there that know what they're doing they just have to be trained and motivated and the other thing is they have to be given con- the ability to build confidence in their bill in their in their relationships going forward and that comes sometimes from parental guidance, but it often comes from coaching and good ment- and mentorship. And that's what I think you have to work on. And that's what your program at least sets the foundation to do, which is outstanding, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you, you know people like, or maybe you don't, because you, you wouldn't run across. Do, do you know Freddie Lewis? Oh, I know Freddie quite well. Yeah. It's okay, been a while so, since I've seen her, but she yeah, worked with well, me on ICSC Commission. Uh, right committees yeah uh so freddie has been great at at spotlighting talent there's a broker at cb adina gittin smith who uh, i don't think she's getting the recognition that she deserves we identified 15 or 16 black brokers across the country ernie said you know who who is there besides the people in D.C. So I gave them a list of uh, brokers that we had identified over, over the years. But 
it's pitifully small. And uh, that's a number in the industry that I've identified. And I said about a third of them are, are, uh, are read graduates. But, hey, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a long arc. A long, a long arc, arc. right. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Joe and John said. It's just it's a long process. You don't, it's occasional you find just real, real superstars. There's the current uh, CEO of RLJ Lodging. She's a special lady. When REAP transitioned out of the uh, recession, that's when Mike Kirschwell said, you can't raise any money now because the industry is broke. And he brought in Greg McCourt, who was his education guy, to, to run the program. For two years, I did a summer, I don't know if you taught in that or not, I did a summer institute for uh, college kids to get them interested. And, and Gary taught and, yeah. and uh, Leslie Hale. Leslie Hale, yeah. Yeah, Leslie Hale taught. And two of the people there went on to go to another outfit called ML. ML4T, Management Leadership for Tomorrow, which is a uh, group founded by John Rice, who used to be head of the NBA. Mm -hmm. And it's a nationwide group that prepares and helps people to get into graduate school, helps minorities get into graduate school. So two of our, of our uh, summer people there uh, went through the program. One of them went to Northwestern, got her MBA there, and now works for Accenture here. The other one went to Booth, which is the University of Chicago's business sure. school. And he ended up at Heitman and then just recently transferred to Sterling Bay, which is a smaller company, but uh, apparently very strong in the Chicago area. When I saw Leslie's uh, picture in the, in the paper, I, I wrote her and I said, hey, you know, you may not remember 10 years ago, but here, Here's what you produced. So I think she was, she was tickled by that. It's funny you uh, say that. She was in my first mentor class at ULI. Uh, she was in her, in her late, in her mid-30s. She had just started at RLJ, and she was vice president of finance because she'd come over from GE Capital. And I could tell just by her spending 10 minutes with me, she was outstanding. And just yeah. Her mind is just really quick really quick. She's smart as hell and she's very nimble with numbers. And that's obviously she became CFO and then CEO. You could tell she also had a charisma about her and somebody like that. I know she doesn't have the time, although with what she's dealing with now, she might have more time than she <laughs> wanted to, to spend time with young women, particularly of color and, and even men, just to inspire them and give them some tips and help. That's what I'm trying to do with John and Joe is to get them, okay, guys, you, get, you can talk about it. Let's try and do some things. So I want you to get involved. So I'm trying to bring them in front of people. So I introduced the fellow who's in my mentor group to them. So they're going to meet uh, the African-American gentleman that's in my, in my group. He's a, he's a trained minister and decided to get into real estate. He's leaving religion to go into real estate. I said, well, Bring some religion to real estate, will you? <laughs> we, we actually have one, one of our first uh, guys in our first class worked for Bill Wolf at First Washington. Sure. Right. Uh -huh. So Bill was one of our initial sponsors, and he gave us financial support after that. 
and first Washington was in in, in its uh, in its heyday, mm-hmm. and uh, when they sold to CalPERS, this man retired, and he said, "I've always wanted to be a minister." So he and his wife started a church in Virginia. I think starting a church is even harder than, than the real yeah. estate business. So he came back to First Washington, and uh, he now manages a, a major property for uh, RPAI in, uh, in the east side of the Beltway. Yeah, that's an interesting. Uh, we, we have a, there's quite a few. I know at least one guy in our most recent class who's a minister plus. And he's active in ULI, as a matter of fact. I want to get into a couple other things before we wrap it up. We've never been through what we're going through right now in the world. And it certainly has an impact on everybody's lives day to day. You were in retail real estate for a long time. How do you see the industry surviving and coming out of this? I got Jody's perspective recently, and his verse was, you know, obvious you know, trying to retain what she has and try to build what she has. What's your sense of it, looking back at, at the industry and where it is today? I'm sure that Jody's answer is far more informed than mine because I'm not running a, a company. And, and if the experts can't give you the answer, I surely can't. You know, between, between Amazon and Walmart and Target taking business away from grocery anchored shopping centers. That's the reason I don't teach retail development anymore because even even three years ago when I started changing the course to mixed use, you know, you could see that the click and brick or brick and click might be helpful. And they've talked about omni-channel and so forth. It's a, uh, the companies that can survive. Oh, I know one of the, one of the interesting family talking about talking with this about a ULI person next week. There's something called mini fulfillment centers, MFCs. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they take spaces as small as 10,000 feet and use them as sort of the last mile uh, for fulfillment of the most active products. And they're fed by the, uh, trying to think what the, Next step up are RFCs, Regional Fulfillment Centers, which, of course, Amazon, Walmart, sure. and Target have put. But I see those as, as having an entitlement uh, land use situation because it seems to me that if you're in a retail situation like uh, you know, a neighborhood shopping center, a warehouse is an industrial use. Now, the people in that neighborhood might say, well, let's, let's give them a waiver because we want the center to survive. We want the barbershop, the ice cream parlor, sure, uh, so forth to survive. So give them a break, uh, county or city. But there can only be so many mini fulfillment centers <laughs> and uh, uh, restaurants. Although I, I saw yesterday Capital Crossing is going to get a couple of restaurants, which they, you know, they desperately need something for 2 million square feet of development. I don't know, John. I I don't even pretend. Everything I could tell you is, is anecdotal. What I, what I hear, the same, same stuff you, you see. I'm just glad I'm not running a company or being asked to handle the relationship between the retail tenant 
on the one side and the mortgage holder on the other, because there's a lot of extend and pretend going on on both sides. And at some point, it's going to come together and people are going to own stuff that they don't want to own. One of the most fascinating things I saw just yesterday is they had a listing of, of companies hiring. And I counted 25 retail, large national retail companies hiring. More, they wanted more than 10,000 employees. So I said, you know, retail may not be dying. So there's actually some companies that really do need, you know, of course, the companies you mentioned, Walmart, Target, but, you know, some other companies too, you know, Home Depot. I mean, there's some companies that are doing extremely well, even still, and that, and certainly the grocery stores, most of them, if they're good business people, are doing very well. Look at Trader Joe's. They keep expanding. You've got coming into this market now, I, Amazon has a new brand coming in, Amazon Go. So, you know, some aspects of retail seem to be striving and thriving. You mentioned the fulfillment center. That's the last mile kind of thinking is what they're looking for is places to, to go. I sense, I agree with you to some extent, but it's less dense use when you have industrial use. You have less people at the center. The question is the truck situation and moving, you know, trucks in and out. If it's smaller trucks, one thing. You make the semis in, you know, there's always that issue. So there's going to be a lot of interesting, you know, and seeing regional malls now turning into fulfillment centers as well. It's going to be interesting to see. The joint venture oh, yeah. between Simon and uh, and Amazon is an interesting, <laughs> interesting discussion. The, the closed giant in Friendship Heights is going to become some new kind of Amazon store. Yes. yes. You got to wonder what's going to happen with the Lord and Taylor and the Neiman Marcus. I had a broker tell me yesterday that retailers are looking for big, for large space. He said, like, like Neiman Marcus. I said, well, maybe so. I mean, Ikea and Home Depot, of course, are very, they're doing very well in this environment. They're, could, you see, uh, uh, could you see Friendship Heights? They, they wipe, you know, demolishing both the Lord and Taylor store and, you know, Matza Gallery and building, let's say, an Ikea on that site. Would that be something? Or well. A huge mixed-use development of some sort. Yeah, it, it would be great, except that I think Mazza still has something in the co- in the covenant that Mrs. Mazza put in that said, "You will never tear this down." So, <laughs> really? that's one of the yeah, yeah. It's uh, and if you if you go in there from the Wisconsin Avenue entrance, you'll see a portrait of Mrs. Mazza hanging over that little coffee shop, just to be sure. That nobody tears it down. It's <laughs> funny so. you say that, Mike. Herb Miller, in the podcast that I did with Herb, his episode, he he tells the story of convincing her to build a mall on that site. And he, he went and uh, called Stanley Marcus and talked Stanley Marcus into building a store, a Neiman Marcus store, at that location. And that was the impetus to build that property. He was still <laughs> a broker. Did. He was still a broker then. Ah. Shannon Lux. Yeah. Didn't know so that. When, they, when the foreclosure announcement came forward on the mall, I wrote Herb and I said, Herb, so you can come full circle. Now you can redo the project if you want. 
<laughs> this would be your next deal. You could start your career all over again with Botsa Gallery. <laughs> Apparently, the mortgagee and the owner are one and the same company. So it, yes. it has the title has merged, and they can now do something with it. Clearly, the you know I've been I've been teaching Friendship Heights in, in Georgetown now for several years, and I worked with the ULI Leadership Institute. They they made that their uh, their on-site project, and uh, I walked I walked the institute through Friendship Heights last. Uh, it was I guess early, last early last spring. It was raining. And uh, so it was a quick walk, but and that that was before I think it was just as Little Beat had opened in the land company site, the site next the marquee site on the Bloomingdale store is still vacant was still vacant then, of course it's still vacant now. H and M had just left. J Crew had just done something I can't remember wasn't. They're still there, but I think they're in chapter. Chevy Chase uh, Pavilion has gone through a lot of changes over yeah. the years. You know, obviously the corner, the northwest corner, of course, went to complete redevelopment over the last 50, 10, 15 years with Boston properties and, you know, uh, New England development and, and uh, Archstone. So that was quite a project. And that may have been done before you started working on that, I imagine. But I did a capstone, supervised a capstone student at Georgetown. This, they, they all have to do uh, sort of a senior thesis before they get their, their master's. Uh, and this guy wanted to do GEICO. And I said, you got to understand, nothing's going to happen on GEICO for two reasons. One, GEICO doesn't need it to happen. And two, if till Friendship Heights happens, nothing will happen at GEICO. And he went ahead and he plowed ahead and he said, here, well, this could happen, that could happen. I said, you know, you, you're just not looking at the real world here. Well, <laughs> if Jeff Bezos calls Warren Buffett, says, Warren, I've got a deal for you. I'm going to buy your property and I'm going to build an Amazon facility on that site. I think something might happen then. <laughs> but that's pure speculation because <laughs> Warren Buffett owns Geico, as you may know. So. Through, oh, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know Berkshire that. Hathaway, didn't. Berkshire Hathaway owns Geico. Okay, okay. I didn't. I didn't know They're that. A Berkshire but that's Hathaway a... Company. Yeah, which is interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, what else can I tell you, John? This has been so, fun. Yeah. So, uh, can you you you've got a fifty-plus-year career? But looking back, what person or person people stood out to you as inspirations, and why, Mike? Well, that's that's a softball question. My father and Dave Rutstein, they both put community first and they, you know, one kind of instilled it in me without my knowing it. And then, of course, Dave was a, uh, he, he was the head of the Meyer Foundation. He was the head of the Hebrew home. When he retired, he moved to uh, Florida and he's, Founded a uh, a new Hebrew home down there, uh, senior citizen home mm -hmm. there. He just can't stop doing good stuff. That's great. And so, uh, if if I think some something 
there's something I need to accomplish that I am trying hard to accomplish. I think about, look at all the stuff that he accomplished that was hard to accomplish. Uh, I assume you, you still stay in touch with him then. I yeah. Imagine. Yeah. That's we, great. we, in fact, we had a, we had a zoom meeting with him and Odana a few weeks ago, just to talk about what was going on. That's so, great. so what advice would you give your 25 year old self today, Mike? Go to business school. <laughs> I think that would have been would have been very helpful to me if I if I'd gone to B school as well. Right as, after uh, right after law school or during law at the same time, kind well, of determinously. I might have enjoyed going to business school more than I enjoyed going to law school. Who knows? <laughs> That's funny. I don't know. I don't know what the B school case study classes are like if they were less well, intimidating than, than uh, the law school classes. Yeah. Joe Carroll did it at the same time. So yes, I know. I know. Law and business. They didn't well, probably have that when you were in school, I imagine. Oh, they did. They did. But uh, that not my idea of fun. Understood. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Mike? Well, one of my favorite songs is, uh, you remember the 59th Street Bridge song, the Simon yes. and Garfunkel? Feeling groovy, yeah. Well, the first line is, slow down, you move too fast. Yes. <laughs> I think that would go, go better than the signs that say, green alert, silver Chevy stolen, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> slow down, you move too fast. I like that. That's great. Well, Mike, on that note, I think we've talked about a lot, and it's been a very interesting and informative discussion. I think a lot of people are going to learn from this if they listen carefully, because there was a lot said and a lot of life lessons you shared, and I appreciate it very much. So thanks. Well, I've, I've enjoyed this. I wasn't sure I'd enjoy this, John, but you are, you are a great host. Well, thank you. You're a great appreciate host. So let's, let's stay in touch, okay? Absolutely. So we just listened to Mike Bush who had an interesting career of starting in law, going to giant food because of his wife taking him to the East Coast, basically, and uh, coming, growing up in Arizona, and uh, took a 20-year career at Giant and then decided, and where it all came from, he was not exactly clear, but at least all of these had this feeling about on the unfairness of minority population to you know, starting up this idea of Project Reap on weekends while he was a giant for the last three years he was there and then didn't realize at the time that he was going to lose his job in 2000 and went on to obviously, yes, you know, elevate Project Reap into what it is today now and then moved on to an academic career himself where he's now just teaching. So he is, it's an interesting background. So I'm, I'm now segueing to uh, my usual postscript with Tom Amos. Tom, welcome. Hey, John. How are you today? Doing well. So what do you have today, Tom? All right. So it was clear, John, that you guys had a lot of um, familiarity with each other and a long relationship there. So today, I just wanted to add some clarity to a couple of items that you guys covered. So the first thing was, you guys mentioned during the conversation, the paper chase, and I was a little unsure on what that exactly was, but uh, 
I just wanted to let the listeners know that that was a movie based on a novel by John Hay Osborne. So that, that was, I just wanted to point that out. Sounds like maybe that would be a good one to, to check out if listeners have time. The other thing that I wanted to add some clarity to was Project Reap. And I know that you guys talk a lot about that program, but I wanted to take a step back for the listeners and, and kind of explain a little bit about the REAP program and how that's set up. So REAP, Real Estate Associate Program, this program kind of gets into more than just real estate. You know, they have people in the program that are architects, bankers, engineers, MBAs, lawyers, and salespeople. The way the program, it looks like it's set up is that it's typically students have held a bachelor's degree and have at least one year's worth of experience before enrolling into the program. And they've got kind of a multi-layer approach, including, and, and Mike gets into this, both education and networking, right? Meeting the right people, learning kind of the right things. And they offer 10-week program both in the spring and fall. So, John, would you go ahead and maybe add some clarity to, for the listeners of kind of what your experience has been with, with Project Reap? I know you get a little bit into that with the interview, but maybe you could tell them a little bit about kind of your involvement with it. Well, I was approached by Mike actually before he left Giant early on in the program to set up with a fellow from the BF Saw company, Brian Barlow, a financial module for his group. And he set it up initially in modules with different disciplines, recruiting black students primarily uh, that were interested in the program. How he actually recruited the students to, to join the program, I don't know the details behind that originally, but it became word of mouth primarily. I also wanted to get employers involved that would be interested in hiring these people after they had gone through the 10-week program and to teach both. So the BF Salt Company was approached to, to actually teach. I was not at Salt at the time. I was at, uh, at Lake Mason, but I had been with Saul and I met Brian when he was there early on in his career. So the two of us worked together on building curriculum. Brian is African-American himself. So we come up, came up with a format that was aimed at teaching primarily uh, the retail analysis of a shopping center. And we do, did the, the financial analysis. You'd start looking at underwriting the properties uh, operating statement. So teaching what an operating statement is all the components of it. So we'd go down line by line through income and expenses and then converting that to value with the, with the capitalization approach. I, high level, I talked about the investment analysis piece, which is internal rate of return and all the things that we talk about in investments, but we didn't dive deeply in that. The issue was to get an initial valuation analysis done. So that's what we got, we approached. And so Mike indicated in the discussion that he didn't have that much of a financial perspective, only understood at a pretty high level. So we got into a little bit more detail to the origins of you know, how you come up with it, that we didn't get into the full investment analysis piece. My understanding is that the program is now matured to the point where they now get into the investment analysis piece in a little bit more detail. Certainly back in the late 1990s, we didn't have the 
financial software that we have today to do the analysis. Things are much more sophisticated now with Argus and various other software packages to do that. So that was my role. The company, or REAP, got involved in, you know, they had a planning module, they had a legal module, they had a property management module, et cetera, et cetera. The initial employment derivatives were property management. Mm -hmm. That's where most of the people came in and, and, you know, to learn, and they left doing it, and mostly in the retail sector because those were the initial relationships that Mike had. As he said, he pressed a lot of his landlord clients, the giant food landlords, to join this program. And of course, giant food has been and may still be the the leading grocer in the region. So every retail developer wanted a relationship with them. Right. So he leveraged his position there a little bit, but did it in a very calm, you know, business-like way. But he had a he had a mission, and he wanted to to increase the exposure to minorities in the in the industry and we talked about that and he's come a long way and the, and the industry's come a long way but we still have a long way to go yeah. as we talked about with john and joe in my earlier podcast interview and interestingly joe carroll was a teacher also in the REAP program yeah and so it's it's an interesting program and i can't say enough good things about this program and i hope that more people that listen will get involved as well. It's now in nine cities, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Nine cities and over 500 graduates is, is what the website Yes. Is. That's, that's yes. awesome. Well, great. Well, that's all I had this week, John. Great. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And listeners, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this uh, discussion with, with Mike. It's, he's, he's a pioneer in the diversity business. So. You know, I hope we can take this further and everyone's thought process to change. Thank you very much. We'll talk soon.